the realities of hooking up patients to their health information. Bob Janicek from Datamotion explains. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. We all talk about being patient-centric. And then we create or maintain HIT systems that aggregate provider data and sprinkle patient data all over the place. Obviously, the ideal scenario here would be to make all provider systems interoperable so that each patient has their own hub and all their data automatically ports into said hub, pulled from any provider's system they happen to visit. Although HIEs are working hard to make this idea a reality, in the meantime, patients don't have their data and it's very difficult for providers to get it to them because of HIPAA-related security concerns. Enter Datamotion. Datamotion is a leader in provider-to-provider secure messaging space and has been for years. And now patients can sign up with Datamotion for their own accounts to join the conversation with their providers. Today, I talk with Bob Janicek from Datamotion about the current and future of moving information between healthcare stakeholders. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Bob. Hi, it's great to be here, Stacy. What do you think the moment in time that we are in right now relative to health IT? We're really at a transformational period in health IT where we finally built enough of the groundwork and we have enough of security in place and the um, automation in place and the standards in place to be able to handle the hundreds of millions of patients that would like to get their hands on their own medical records. By doing that, we're able to empower the patient to take charge of their own care in ways that have never been possible before. Do you feel that one of the main issues with giving patients access to their records in the past or access to their own information in the past has been a question of security? Yeah, absolutely. If you look at the uh, recent breaches and hacks They've centered around financial breaches, but they've now more recently centered around medical data breaches and insurance breaches. The reason that is, is that a medical record has so much rich data in it about the person, about their conditions, about drugs that they're taking that can be exploited by hackers. The value of a a medical record is many times more valuable on the black market than, than that of a financial record. You know, this is something that I never quite understood. So just color me naive. What is the value of a hacker knowing that someone has a medical condition? Who do they sell that information to? Medical records are composed of different parts of a person's life. Not only does it have their identity, their address information, it has their insurance information, it has their medical condition and the drugs they're taking. Uh, It's a very rich record set as opposed to a financial document, which has one aspect of your life. So from a a hacker's perspective, they're able to to either blackmail the person because they have that much information and they know that the person has a condition that maybe shouldn't be disclosed, Um, that they they may be able to take that person's um, identity into a clinical setting and get those drugs 
you know, there may be certain painkillers and things that, that they want to get. And by assuming that person's identity, knowing the information about the person, they can gain access to these restricted drugs. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why a medical record is so valuable and why this securing that medical record is of, of utmost importance. And when we're talking about this whole idea of getting patients' information to their medical records, you know, this whole talk about being patient-centered, you know, you, you can't read three articles and, and not hear the term. But from an HIT perspective, what does that mean? Sure. Um, getting the record into the patient's hands means that you're, you're getting a copy of wherever that patient went for care. They, they get an electronic copy that's in their own possession. It's not tethered to the system that generated that data. It's actually a copy that's put in the patient's hands and for the patient to do with what they would like. I'd like to take a step back here. The HIT industry, uh, I think, incorrectly refers to patients. It's patients, patients, patients all the time. People don't think of themselves as patients year-round. They're a patient when they're going into the hospital for that week of surgery and maybe the week after, and they're happy to potentially log into the hospital's portal, though very few do, so I don't know really how happy they are. But for the other 50 weeks of the year, they're not a patient at that hospital. They're a person. They're going to, to you know, their local CVS or Rite Aid to get an immunization or a, or a flu shot. They're going to their own specialist. Uh, if they're lucky enough, they're going down to Florida or some snowbird state in the winter you know, to get out of the cold of the north, and they may be seeing care providers down there. Um, th they have their own life. I mean, they're a person. So all the points of care that they touch during the year is their medical experience. It's not the hospital's portal and that one event that the industry is so centered around this patient portal and you know, why isn't it being used that much? It doesn't have a holistic view of the person. It's only the patient for that one episode. It's funny because just this morning I was reading a study by the University of Wisconsin, which was talking about exactly that, that actually only 20% of outcomes are derived from clinical interventions, you know, or, or that can be attributed back to clinical care. You can improve outcomes by meeting a patient where a, a, or a person in, in the parlance that you just suggested in the place that a person is by impacting their lives because so much of their health care outcomes are driven by how they live their lives, not necessarily the, by the 1% of the time they happen to be in a clinical setting getting clinical treatment. You know, you hear hospital CMOs saying we need a we need an app, we need a mobile interface, you know, for our, our patients. Here we go again to access, but that's just a glorified view of a portal, you know, where that they used to have. But it's still that myopic view of of the data of what the person's life is. If we look at some other aspects of it, even something as simple as as a mom at home who is taking care of her kids that they need physicals for sports or they need immunizations that the school nurse needs to see, that kind of thing. That's a very paper-intensive process today. My wife just you know, had to go through this. She had to, had to go to the school nurse, get a you know, fifth-generation photocopy of some immunization form, and it's barely legible, and drive to the, 
the kids' pediatricians, put it on the pediatrician's desk and get a call three days later to pick up the, the form and cart it back to the school nurse. And this happens with camp counselors and all kinds of areas where if you were to put that data in the person's hand, whether it's the family's care provider or the patient or the, excuse me, the person that wants to take care of his own health, take charge of his own health, there are so many opportunities to leverage technology, leverage efficiencies, and you know, cut costs out of the system. That's really what I talk about when I say we're at a transformational stage in healthcare of, of really meeting the person where they're at. There are so many people coming in to what you're saying from so many different directions. As far as data motion goes, what are you doing very specifically to facilitate that idea of how do you get data into the hands of the patient? Right. Well, ever since Meaningful Use 2 came about, uh, there are certain technologies that had to be in an EHR. And one of those is called direct messaging. It's a form of email if you have a direct message address. Other than probably the word direct somewhere in it, it looks exactly like an email. These EMRs have direct messaging built in in order to allow their customers to attest for meaningful use. So that's a common protocol that a wide range of hospitals and clinical systems can speak. And we're a provider in four hospitals and HIEs and you know, acute and ambulatory settings. We provide the uh, professionals with direct you know, messaging addresses. What we're doing now is bringing that to the next level. It's, we're providing patients with direct addresses as well. And that allows that protocol that's built into the EHR or into, in, into the, the lab where your blood work gets done or, or where you get your, your CAT scan done to send that information, not only among a professional to professional setting, but now a professional to consumer setting uh, and put that data in the patient or the, the person's hands. Basically how this would look is, you know, I go to a doctor, the doctor takes notes. I say, I would like those notes. And here's my, you know, here's my data motion, direct messaging, secure email, you know, right. address. Right. Is that how that looks? Sure. Stacy at direct.dmhisp.com. A HISP is called a, is a healthcare ISP. That's a provider of direct messaging. But you would have something that looks like an email address, you know, the one I just made up for you. Mm-hmm. And that's what you would provide your doctor. That's how they're doing what's called transition of care from their setting to another setting uh, using direct messaging between doctors. That's how they would use that same system to send that to you. So now it's in the palm of your hands. At this moment in time, is there a similar issue as back in the old days? You know, if I have a CompuServe address and you have an AOL email address, I can't email you. I mean, if, right. if I have one direct, you know, secure messaging mailbox, can I only email, you know, in quotes, I'm using that term probably incorrectly, but can I only communicate with people within that same HISP or same direct messaging service? Or, or you know, can you hop over the wall into another one? Right. That's actually one of the beauties of direct. It's one of its, I guess, foundational pillars. It, there's a scalable trust model, big, big words. But what it means is that the security and trust is pre-negotiated between HISPs between providers of direct messaging. 
And if those HISPs are audited, our, our latest audit was over 700 documents. And we're happy to say we got a 97 on it. So we, we did pretty well. And so anyway, if you pass the audit, 80 or higher, whatever the, the number is, you can get added to this trust community. That means that you know, Datamotion as a HISP service provider, all of our customers can communicate with all of the customers of the other HISPs that have also passed that, that high bar. So the customers don't need to pre-negotiate anything with each other. As long as they choose a HISP that's in that trust community, and there's about you know, 50 of them in, in the direct trust community, then th those 50 HISPs and all of their customers can communicate with each other. That's on the professional side of the house. On the patient side of the house, there's another organization called NATE, which is the National Association for Trusted Exchange. And they represent a trust framework called NATE Blue Button for Consumers. You may have heard of Blue Button. That was a VA initiative. The VA turned that over to NATE to commercialize it and to operate that framework. So NATE is very strong in the patient side of the world. Direct Trust has cut its teeth on the professional side of the world. And those are the two main trust communities that are getting direct as frictionless as possible you know, to the um, 300 million consumers in America and, and millions of providers. I have so many questions, I don't even know where to start. So why don't we start on the provider side of the equation, which is what the scalable trust model that you were talking about. Right. So, so two questions there. Do you feel like direct messaging is something that is always going to be around because it's kind of this side of interoperability? Or do you feel like it's probably an impossible dream that all of the, you know, everyone's health systems are interoperable? So you're always going to need to have a way for one system to communicate with another, i.e. by emailing things around. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, direct is a transport protocol that adds the security and trust so that two, let's say, you know, two hospitals don't have to negotiate a point-to-point -point contract between each other. Uh, direct sets that common um, security and trust framework uh, so that the hospitals can get on board in hours or a day and without the point-to-point -point legal agreements. So, you know, direct takes the approach that email is a lowest common denominator. And it has the encryption and security and identity management and things built around that to overcome the needs of HIPAA and the you know, High Tech Act and all that. It, it eliminates a lot of the paperwork that typically goes on when two organizations make a point-to-point -point connection between each other. So it, the security and trust framework is, is just as important, if not more important, than the protocol of direct itself in eliminating that illegal paperwork side of it. From the other aspect of direct is like email. Well, in the corporate world, email is still the killer app. Uh, I know Facebook has tried, you know, has taken the subject away from their messages, and and everyone went crazy saying email is going to lose its subject. But I haven't seen that yet in Outlook. Um, you know, no one is using you know IM as uh, instant messaging or or web services, RESTful APIs between each other. That's that hasn't happened in the corporate world. Every technology has its place. Um, I think in health IT, they're very good at chasing the next shiny ball, and, and that currently is Fire, which is a RESTful API. Fire will have its, its place. Email 
or direct will have its place. Secure chat and text will have its place. It's not a one size, it's a huge market. It's not a one size fits all. You know, direct is a perfect technology where you're looking for wide adoption, where you don't need a system integrator to come in and make a point to point connection. What's your direct address? Let me look it up in a in an online directory, click it and send. And having never met that person before or that provider before, I can get that, that clinical data to them. It's pretty hard to beat that when it comes to a, a frictionless model. So I think direct will always have its place. Let's move on to the, what you had mentioned before about Nate, which is the you currently spearheading the, the the blue button initiative. Could you talk a little bit more about that? You know, what exactly are they up to? You know, where is blue button these days? Sure. So Nate is uh, representing uh, the, the blue button in a new, uh, it's actually blue button plus is the, the version of blue button that has direct messaging associated with it. And Nate has under their stewardship, they call it the NBB4C, Nate Blue Button for Consumer. So they have a set of security and trust guidelines around you know, the uh, direct messaging, the, the Blue Button version of, or the Blue Button community for direct messaging. When Nate gets up in the morning, they're thinking patient. And the patient you know, has different needs and different applications that they interface with and providers. Nate has a concept called consumer-facing application or CFA as shorthand. And these are the thousands or 100,000 apps on the iOS you know, app store that are getting into mHealth. Um, a lot of these Silicon Valley you know, companies or startups don't necessarily understand the security of, uh, of HIPAA. You know, they're, they're enabling the functionality of moving data around, but the storing data at rest securely, storing it, securing it in motion, vetting the users who are using their application so you know who to send this data to, that they really are that person. Nate kind of shepherds all of these consumer-facing applications, these CFAs, you know, not only in that they have to meet the security and trust bar, but they, they take more of a holistic approach that a lot of these companies need to be educated in, in how to secure the data. You know, on the professional side, the big EHRs know how to do that. But these little startups on the M Health side may not. So Nate kind of takes more of a nurturing approach so that the applications that a consumer downloads, if they see that it's Nate approved, they know that the security and, and trust you know, is really taken care of by that developer. Is Nate a government arm or is it a private organization? No, Nate is um, it's a nonprofit private organization similar to Direct Trust. It, it's recognized by the government as one of the the um, trust communities, and you know that's you know they're the ones that, like I say, are spearheading the patient engagement, similar to Direct Trust spearheading the the professional engagement. Oh, I understand. So there's two organizations that we're talking about here. One is named Direct Trust and one is named Nate. And right, right. and both of them have, you know, considering that uh, Nate is consumer, that their mission is to be uh, to, to handle the consumer aspect of this. I, I think they need to focus a little bit on how they name their, uh, I don't think NBB4C is I don't know. I'm no branding expert, but um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that the, the uh, powers that be at Nate would love um, 
community feedback and their marketing <laughs> side. They, they probably don't spend a lot on that side of the house. So. Yeah, but but they're doing heavy lifting on security and trust and and patient privacy. So we'll we'll give them a pass on the uh, marketing. So, so there is a number of you know mobile app developers that I am aware of that that listen to this program. I would assume by what you're saying that they should already be incredibly familiar with with Nate. It, would you assume that as well? No, I think they never heard of him. Oh. So what's your advice here, my friend? Well, let's get this podcast out as wide and broad, <laughs> broad as possible, right? We can uh, put a QR code in a uh, in a skywriting plane or something, and maybe people can take a picture of the sky and get to it. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. It's a big market. You know, we're not talking about the thousands of doctors in a health system. We're talking about that health system's millions of patients. So it's really going to be a partnership. You know, Nate can only do so much. They they can set the you know the the guidelines and such. But it really is going to be the health system that buys into empowering the health system's patients, so that when they leave the health system and become people, that they have that medical data you know, with them to share with their specialist, to share with their nutritionist, to share with their brother who is part of the family care team. And so it's, you know, first you need the foundation and direct trust and Nate, you know, have done that. And now we, we need the buy-in, and which is happening in the private sector, plus in the federal sector and the VA and DOD to evangelize that the, the, this data can be unso- you know, removed from the silo of the health system, not only among caregivers or care providers, but also to the patient, because for most of the year, that, that patient is a person that's going to go around to people outside of that health system to, to get care. I had a revelation the other day. Someone was talking about how unpatient-centric the HIT really is because of exactly what you're saying. That data, if you look at how the data is segmented and siloed, it's providers being provider-centric. You know, if every single provider has their own little silo and includes, you know, 5% of a patient's data, that is the most unpatient-centric you can get. Actually, you know, Dave Chase, who he's a writer for for Forbes, he he called it, he said, we're at a Copernican moment, I think is the way that he put it, that in the past, the provider is like Earth, you know, and thinks that the universe revolves around Earth. Because if you look at their data, that's exactly how it, it works. You know, providers, the center of the universe and all their data is revolving around them. So his point was, is that we need to understand that if you want to make the patient the center of the universe, then all the data has to revolve around the patient. You know, that the patient needs to have a holistic view. The, the holistic view needs to be ar- around a whole patient as opposed to a whole provider, if that right. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of benefits to the whole health system when you can, you can provide the family's caregiver, the mom or whoever, uh, who's taking care of her elderly parents and you know, the elderly in-laws and the kids and the husband and all, or the the person, you know, the patient who has the wherewithal to forward something to his uh, or her nutritionist or you know the, their specialist and whatnot of you know what just happened in the hospital and you know the the heart doctor needs to see that. You know, not only does the person get better care and and better outcomes through this 
you know, full view of information. There are stats that show that 30% of the procedures in healthcare are redundant. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars of waste because we can't get those procedures in the person's hands for when they go to the next point of their care. You have a very interesting collaboration with Stella Technologies, who actually is episode 29 of this this podcast. I, I interviewed Salim Kazarali uh, last year at, at some juncture. What, what, are you, what are you working on with, with Stella? Sure. So it's at a, a prototype stage, but yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, it, it definitely works. Stella is doing um, data quality analysis on the CCD. You know, I call that the last 10 feet of interoperability. The um, medical record gets transmitted from the point of care to the next, next stage, let's say from a hospital to the provider for uh, ongoing care. You know, so the hospital system generates this HL7 document. The hospital's HISP sends it to the provider's HISP. The provider's HISP hands it off to the provider's EHR, right? Just a workflow. It's an electronic version of what you normally get by fax. Um, but because that, that CCD wasn't encoded in a proper way, the provider's EHR rejects it. So all this data flow happened, but the last 10 feet failed. That's the, that's the level where interoperability happens or fails. You know, it's got to be end-to-end 100%. So what this pilot, which we did uh, down at the, an NJ Hymns show in Atlantic City with um, Stella, uh, we showed it for the first time. What we're doing is, for those of our customers that, that would like this, we're taking the incoming CCD that would normally go into our customer's EHR, we're handing it off to Stella and, and their RESTful API to examine the quality of that CCD. And if it gets, you know, if certain fields are wrong or, or whatnot, it, it gets a score. And let's say, you know, a score below 90 um, should be, we should send a reject back to the sending HISP so that the, the sender knows at that point of sending, hey, this wasn't formed correctly. So it's really about how do you solve those last 10 feet of, of interoperability issues? Stella's approach is let's, let's do a quality score on it and let's make sure it has all those those fields um, in it that are actionable you know, for the destination EHR and do that in an automated way so that there's not an exception, a human-based exception in the workflow, or even worse, that the, the provider who's now in charge of that, that patient doesn't act accordingly because they didn't have the information that was crucial to that patient's diagnosis. What we're talking about now is not necessarily, I'm just sending you a random email, you know, secure email, like, hi, Bob, how are you? This is, I am actually transferring a CCD within that secure email that another doctor on the other end of the line is going to take and import into, a, a, you know, my own EHR as part of my patient record. Right, that's correct. When I mentioned that direct was introduced with meaningful use too, the key workflow there was transitions of care. Currently from one care setting to another, or actually before direct, before MU2, a, a fax was generated from the providing uh, the source to the, the destination. So we went from a, you know, digital records back to a, a TIFF image or worse, a, a piece of paper that went into a file. So we kind of went backwards. So that transition of care had to be sent digitally to match the electronic medical record 
and direct was chosen as that lowest denominator transport to keep the data digital between the, you know, the um, care settings. So that's the, you know, the workflow, so to speak, is let's eliminate facts with direct. Let's carry this payload of a transition of care document, get it to the destination. But there's still an interoperability issue if it's not coded correctly, it's still going to bounce. So, so let's identify that as early as possible in the workflow, which is at the point of generation, not when that CCD is looked at you know, 12 hours later or the next day. Let's do it immediately upon arrival and immediately send feedback to the sender to say, something's wrong here. That's the whole point of this collaboration and, and where direct and transition to care documents fit in. And when you say formatted correctly, like, for example, I know that HIMS has been working on interoperability standards. So when you say formatted correctly or coded correctly, are you talking about whether they're correctly coded based on the HIMS standard, interoperability standard, or is there some other facet of this that I'm not aware of? Right. So, yeah, it's all based on... Um, on HL7, and HL7 is a very you know, meticulous, um, you know, well-defined, um, it provides meticulous, well-defined specifications. But each vendor, each, each EHR vendor then implements you know, their EHR to parse and generate HL7 based on the, the written word you know, of, of, of the HL7 spec. And in the field, there's a lot of um, nuances or gray areas where you know, 9 out of 10 read it one way, but the 1 out of 10 read it the other, and you almost can't fault them because they came at it from that angle. An example would be the word null. You know, uh, that's a common term in IT. You know, it's uh, you know, the absence of, of data. And in, in, in HL7, or in you know, the HL7 spec, most vendors code a null field by just not putting anything there. And just having the, the brackets in the uh, XML touch each other. Any programmer would be familiar with that. But some EHRs, major ones actually, um, use the word, expected the word N U L L in a lowercase. And if you didn't put the word in there, the EHR rejected the message because that was you know, maybe their interpretation in when that module was written. And, and it may have been correct at the time. And a lot of these systems are pretty old and aren't always updated. Um, so those are the kinds of things. If you need to get that workflow to happen, you have to look at that last 10 feet of that handoff to that system. And if you need to, you know, either the sender has to adjust or the, the, the HISP that's feeding the, that data into the EHR or, or someone in between has to adjust it or that EHR, you know, the whole thing's going to bounce. If someone, say the recipient is using a really old EHR because they haven't upgraded for a while and the sender is actually formatting things right, but the you know recipient is old, are you saying that it's the responsibility of the HISP to kind of get in there and change the brackets to nulls because they see what the scenario they're headed into? No, it's not, it's not the responsibility of the HISP, but it's the responsibility of someone. So it's a matter of who in the chain is going to step up? Is the is the recipient uh, the recipient's EHR vendor going to? Maybe, but maybe not for a year, or maybe they want them to upgrade to the latest version for you know, a huge upgrade fee. You just get into the into the realities of 
you know, you can point fingers and say who's supposed to do it, but if, if it doesn't get done in a timely fashion, the patient's care suffers. So, you know, one of the things that I always say is that, you know, our approach to, you know, being a HISP and being a, a provider of this, you know, secure collaboration between so many different members of the, uh, of the community, you know, from systems to HIEs to doctors to patients, it's really care collaboration. You have to go beyond the protocol to actually make the, the last 10 feet work. Not every case, but in enough cases where if you don't think beyond the protocol and have the ability to do that last 10 feet correctly, you, know, you can be right as far as the spec goes, but the project fails. And that's, that's really not what anyone wants to see. And I could, I could see that just simply knowing that you're missing information <laughs> is a gigantic step. You know, nothing would be worse than the recipient not realizing that half the data is missing. Right, right. Exactly correct. Well, it has been such a pleasure having you on the program today, Bob. If someone is interested in more information about data motion, where would you direct them? Sure. Um, so our website is datamotionhealth.com, uh, just all one word. And, you know, that's where you could see everything about, you know, what we're doing. Um, you know, not only about this direct messaging, but also our identity vetting that allows patients to, you know, identify themselves right from their smartphone and join this network uh, just by snapping a, a picture of their license and insurance card. You know, there's a lot of neat things that are there that go beyond the protocol to make this whole you know, care coordination, uh, you know, approach and engagement work. Fantastic. So if any individuals are out there who are looking to get their own secure email address so that they can inform their doctor to send them things via that secure email address, they merely have to go to your website. Is that what I'm understanding? Yeah. Well, I will be heading over there this afternoon. Thank you so much, Bob. Sure. You're welcome. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far. There are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.